Let me just uh, give a formal introduction here to Josh and come on up. He does serve as the vice president of the organization Love Life. And uh, so as our adoption week, um, we were thrilled that he was free and available to come and uh, preach. And uh, he said, you know, my family uh, leads music as well. We love the opportunity to do that. He said, we love to give you the opportunity. So thank you for uh, doing that. And then you got another song for us a little bit later as well. So looking forward to that. But uh, now I'm just about to come and share what God's laid in your heart. All right. Thank you. Give me one second here, I'm going to take control of the television. <laughs> it's good to be here. Uh, this is going to be a little bit of a different message. I, I know uh, traditionally for you guys as a church, and even for me, typically I like to preach through a passage of scripture. Um, but this is going to be a pretty topical message, and so we'll be bouncing around to uh, several different places. Um, just by way of introduction, this is my wife, Jenna. We've been, we'll be married 22 years in July. Our daughter, Caitlin, and then Samuel. And uh, we have been a part of Love Life on staff since 2018, um, and uh, as a partnering pastor since 2017. So I was like most, I think... Typical pastors where to be pro-life means you fill baby bottles with change for the local pregnancy care center. You preach sanctity of life maybe once a year, and then every two to four years you talk about elections and beyond that. What else can you do unless you want to be one of those crazies who hold signs out in front of abortion clinics and yell at people? Uh, I didn't really know what else to do. Uh, I actually got invited to the abortion clinic in Charlotte a few years before Love Life started. I had some friends out there that were ministering, I believe, Cities for Life. Daniel was probably there at the time. Uh, I remember experiencing that day. It was like very heavy and, you know, just overwhelming. And, and the thought never occurred to me, this, this, is a, this is a good place for me to bring my people to. Like I should bring my church here. I never thought that way. And then a few years later, I got invited back to do a one-hour journey with Love Life. And I left that experience saying, I have to bring my people here. And the difference was, is it was the same impact as far as seeing the reality of what was taking place, but Love Life had provided a very practical way for my church to get involved. And then they told me all of these amazing stories about how God was using ordinary people just like you and me to make a difference in real people's lives. And it wasn't this like distant political issue. It was a gospel issue. It was a love your neighbor as you love yourself issue. And the results and the, the ripple effects were tremendous. And even for us as a church, partnering with Love Life has had so many effects on our people. I just spoke to a couple today. Um, they, uh, they're married now, but before marriage, they had an abortion together, and it was like this big, secret, shameful thing for them for many, many years in their marriage. They came through a post-abortion uh, recovery class, and the Lord met them in that place, has brought healing to where now they share uh, about their story and what happened in their life. And we've had numerous men and women go through post-abortion recovery classes. We've had families that have adopted and foster care. Uh, we, we have uh, women that volunteer on the mobile unit and do ultrasounds. We have men that drive the RV on Saturdays. Uh, we've mentored moms and thrown baby showers. And, and, and so it's like it's given our people a way for them to be involved in ministry, uh, especially around very difficult, difficult, <laughs> difficult and controversial issues. And uh, so with that said, um, before I get into kind of the, the practicalities of, of love life, and, and I want to share with you guys today about a subject that's very near and dear to my heart, that is an element of love life, um, I, I want to share some biblical foundations that I believe keep us rooted in how to approach this, this moral issue. Um, in our culture today, you hear a lot of discussion. Uh, if you're if you're pro-abortion, typically centered around the mother and her rights and her freedoms and her health care. Uh, if you're pro-life, you tend to talk more about the baby and the baby's rights. Um, and, and not to say that the pro-life movement doesn't also care about the mother, but I I I believe that there's a forgotten person in this equation, and it's God. I believe that really the, the, the primary thing with abortion is that abortion is primarily about God and about God's glory. 
And if we have that right understanding, we'll have the courage and the endurance to step into something that, quite frankly, I mean, I, I got to be honest with you, I, I did, ne I never saw myself working for a ministry like Love Life. I'm not some like pro-life activist, but just a pastor. Like I, just, I love people. I love shepherding people, encouraging people, counseling, those sorts of things. Um, but. God has, God has called me into this, and, and if you don't keep your focus right and your motives right, it's really easy to get bogged down in negative things, in the spiritual warfare. It's easy to get angry. It's easy to get discouraged. And so I want to keep us focused on the Father, uh, God the Father, and, uh, and I, I do agree with you. I saw you mouth Father, and I agree with you that the men, and that's a big part of our ministry, if men took their rightful place as protectors and providers, uh, a lot of women, I believe, would not choose abortion, and right. um, and that is a, a huge component as well. Um, so start. I want to start with Forgotten God and, and just show you how God kind of gets left out of this, this equation and start with foundations. I had the incredible opportunity to be at the Creation Museum a few weeks ago with Caitlin. We got to meet Ken Ham. And, uh, and in, in the Creation Museum now, there's this beautiful Sanctity of Life exhibit uh, that is um, so well done, and uh, showing the development of the baby and the value that each human being has because we're made in the image of God. And, and just want to begin by reminding us God's purpose in creation. So when you read and you look in Genesis chapter 1, uh, very well known verse, uh, verses 26 to 27 says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over all, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air, and every living thing that moves on the earth. So God's original intent in creation is this. You and I are different from all the rest of creation. You are not a descendant of apes. You are not the result of millions and millions of years of random processes and primordial suit. You and I have been created in the image of God, meaning that not only do we have intrinsic worth and value, but we also have purpose. That as his creation, we have been made to reflect and image what God is like in the earth. And the way that Adam and Eve were created to do that was in this relationship where God was their father, he determined right and wrong, and they lived under his good rule and reign. And then as little image bearers, they reflected the father to, to their family. Obviously, first they served their family, but then as the family grew, they were to fill the earth. So God's intention is for human beings to reproduce and multiply and make more little image bearers and for God's earth to be filled with God's image. Why? What for? What's the ultimate purpose? For his glory. For his glory. God says that he made us for himself, for his glory. So that's God's original intention. That's, that's how human beings were created. Now, it doesn't, you don't have to go very far into the Genesis narrative to see that there was someone who hated that design, who wanted to destroy that design. And so in Genesis chapter 3, we're introduced to the serpent, which later we, we come to understand that the serpent was Satan, the ultimate enemy of God, who hates the image of God. And what does Satan introduce to Adam and Eve? Did God really say, and he deceives them, and he causes them to doubt, and what does he say to them? God knows that in the day you eat of it, not that you will surely die, he says you will become like God. Now, what? how did God make us? They were already like God. They were already made in the image and likeness of God, but there was a difference. 
In God's design, we live under God's good rule and reign, and he determines right and wrong. Satan says, no, 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 you don't have to do that. You can be like God, and you can determine right and wrong for yourself. You don't need him. He's holding out on you. You actually can know better. You can be autonomous. You can be on your own. You can be your own God. And they believe that lie. And what happens in the very next chapter of the Bible? Cain thinks his life is more valuable than his brother's, and he takes his life. You see, Satan has a very clear plan to destroy the image of God in the earth any way that he can. And we see so many ways played out in our culture today in which we devalue one another. And the Bible addresses it too, even to, in the book of James, James even links us the way that we talk about each other as a way of devaluing one another who are made in the image of God. And so when you understand, ultimately, <laughs> abortion is not about Republicans and Democrats. Abortion is about the destruction of the image of God and robbing God of his glory by keeping people from reproducing his image in the earth. You see now that this really isn't about politics. This is about kingdoms. This is about God's kingdom and God's family versus Satan's kingdom, his agenda, and what he wants. And he is very keen. Now, when you read the first 11 chapters of the Bible, you see so much of the foundations of how we view our world. And specifically, when you look at um, Genesis chapter 1, the passage that I just read, that talks about God making us in his image, male and female. And within this context, he tells male and female to reunite and become one, uh, become one flesh. And, and all of this language is linked to male, female, one flesh, in his image, reproducing, multiplying. All of that is linked to image language, God's image, being made in God's image, right? Look at all of the major political hot topic agendas that are flooding our culture right now. They're all linked to this. Sexuality, gender, abortion, all of these things. Why? Because Satan hates the glory of God, and he goes after the glory of God by attacking the image of God. So what this does, when we frame this the right way, we understand that politicians are not our enemies. We understand that pro-abortion folks are not our enemies. We understand there is one enemy, and his agenda is to rob God of his glory by destroying the image of God in the earth. And that helps us keep a right motivation in a right frame of how we approach this. Now, I want to point to you, secondly, not only about God being forgotten, but I want to share with you from the Bible God's heart for children. And the reason uh, that I believe the Lord has laid this on my heart is because the church and Christians, Christ followers, are constantly being pressured to adopt the culture's language and the culture's view of the world. And if we're not careful and we don't understand the biblical foundations for why we value children and why we would defend children, why we would defend the weak and the powerless and the innocent, uh, it's easy to get swept up in that when you're constantly bombarded with another message. And so I want to just remind us of a few things. So Psalm 139, very well-known passage. I want you guys to turn there with me. Psalm 139. Now understand, Psalm 139 is poetic language. Starting in verse 13. And even though it is poetic language, the, the heart and, and the conviction that David is sharing with us is God's intimate role in forming human life in the womb. So David says, for you form my inward parts, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I think it's important to understand David's understanding of personhood even in the womb. Because remember, what does our culture tell us? It's not a person. It's, it's, it's not a human being with the same rights and values and protections that you and I have. Why? Because it's still in the womb. David says, while in the womb, God knows you, he's knitting you together. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it 
very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. In Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 5, uh, God is speaking to the prophet Jeremiah, and he tells Jeremiah, Jeremiah, before you were ever born, I knew you, and I set you apart for a very specific purpose to be a prophet. You should understand that the Bible teaches us clearly that uh, it does not make distinction between child in the womb, child outside of the womb, and that God is involved in our creation. He's involved in us being formed and knit together in our mother's womb, and that he knows us. You see the beauty of this? You see, we have we have 20-somethings and 30-something-year-olds, and even now our teenagers, that are being uh, inundated with this cultural lie that we're no different than the animal kingdom. That we're not here for any purpose other than we just got here, so let's eat, drink, for, and, 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 and be merry for tomorrow we die. There's not really a, a true meaning and purpose behind why we're here. And, and, and you, you wonder then, well, that's how we get the cultural mess that we're in. Because when you tell people over and over and over that basically you're descendants of apes and you're no different than the animal kingdom, then you can behave like animals. That's just normal. You're a part of that kingdom anyway. But God's word tells us differently that we're not here by mistake and we're not the same as the animal kingdom that we're made differently in his image. His breath is in us as we sang about uh, earlier today. The scriptures remind us about God's valuing of children in Psalm 127 verses 3 through 5. If you, You're already in Psalm 139, so if you just go back to the left just a few pages, Psalm 127 verses 3 through 5 says, Behold, Children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are children of one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. He shall not be put to shame. The Bible teaches us that children are a blessing. They're not a curse. Children are valued in God's eyes. He deeply loves them. In Psalm chapter 8, verse 2, the Bible tells us that God created children... To bring him praise out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have ordained praise. And Jesus himself, when he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, and the children were praising him, and the adults tried to quiet them, Jesus quotes Psalm 8-2 and says, Don't you remember, out of the mouth and mouth of babes and infants, you have ordained strength. God, do you think, and this is happening, guys, this is happening in, in Christian culture, where, where we are adopting the language of the world that abortion is somehow a mercy or that abortion is not really, it's not the same because it's, it's a clump of cells. The church is buying into this language. And I want you just to think logically, when you hear the Bible and you hear God's heart for children, do you think God goes, it's totally fine? It's just a clump of cells. Do you think the Father's heart agrees with that worldview of babies in the womb, of human beings in the womb. He ordained children for praise. And think about Jesus' language uh, about children and his interactions with his disciples. Remember, the children were trying to get to Jesus, and he was busy, and the disciples were trying to keep the children away. And what does Jesus say? No. Don't hinder the children from coming into me. Why? For such is the kingdom of heaven. He often would pull a child to the side when his disciples were arguing about who is the greatest and point to a child and say, if you want to be in my kingdom, you have to be like one of these. He goes on to say, whoever receives one of these little children receives me. And then he says, by the way, if you cause one of these little ones to stumble or to sin, it would be better for you to have a millstone hung around your neck and to be cast into the sea. Do you see, do you feel, do you hear the Father's heart for children and how he loves his creation? Now, I want to cap it off for you in Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel might be hard to find. It's one of those odd books. There's a lot of weird stuff in the book of Ezekiel. If you were reading, I'm just preparing you. It, it might get an R rating if it were a movie, okay? It's, it's out there. But, uh, Ezekiel chapter 16. The prophet Ezekiel is speaking to the people of God, and he's rebuking them. And the reason he's rebuking them is because God's people have 
bought into the cultural practices of the pagan nations around them, and instead of trusting their God to provide for their needs, to give them health, to do what God promised he would do, they started taking the practices of their pagan neighbors and they would make statues of their, of their god, Molech, and they would heat the statue with fire, and they would take their babies, and they would place them on this altar of fire and sacrifice their babies to these, to these gods, these idols. And I want you to hear what God says to the prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel 16, verse 20. It says, And you took your sons and daughters... Whom you had born to me. Do you see what God just said there? You took your sons and daughters that were born to who? To him. So for us mamas and daddies in this room, the children that God has blessed us with, who do they ultimately belong to? They belong to the Father. He says, You took your sons and daughters whom you born to who you had born to me, and these you sacrificed to them, to the idols, to be devoured. For your glory is so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them. See, God's God's heart is broken over what is happening. Not just because the parents were offering their children, but he viewed every one of those children as his own. This spirit that existed back then is the same spirit that exists today that convinces moms and dads that by having an abortion, they will get the thing that they're seeking. Peace, finances, prosperity, whatever it is. My friend Scott Heldreth has often said that every person who shows up to an abortion clinic is looking for salvation. They're just looking for it in the wrong place, in the wrong person. One last place I want you to look in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1. There's a, a verse in Isaiah 1 that we're very familiar with. You guys remember every time it snows, I always think of this verse. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be whiter than snow. Well, that comes at the end of this passage. But in the middle of this passage, the Lord begins to rebuke Israel. Because, again, I, I, I do believe part of what they're being rebuked for is the child sacrifice, but I would say in general because of injustice, of, of not caring for the innocent and the weak. And so hear, hear what Isaiah says. Hear the word of the Lord. This is verse 10, Isaiah 1, verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, the rulers of Sodom. Now, so what he's doing there is he's comparing Israel to Sodom and Gomorrah. He's not actually talking Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God and people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring me no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. You wash yourself. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come, let us reason together. Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. So you get the scene here of the people of God going through the religious rituals and their traditions, and God says, please stop doing them. 
Because while you're being religious and, and you've got this facade of looking like things are right, you have injustice. There's blood on your hands. The innocent are being trampled among you. And, and not. It's, I don't believe that they were just permitting it. The text seems to teach that they were part of it. And he's saying, listen, please stop the religious stuff and stop doing evil. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Why? If we're just all part of the animal kingdom, there is no such thing as oppression. There is no such thing as evil. It just is what it is. It's just biological beings doing what biological beings and animals do. But because we're made in the image of God, valued by God, loved by God, for God's glory, for God's purpose, when injustice and oppression happen, when the fatherless is abandoned, when children are being sacrificed to God as food, God says, you've got to intervene. You can't be doing your goody-goody religious stuff and turning a blind eye to what's happening to the people that I love. Now, abortion is a part of that. There are other things that are happening that when we see them taking place, God wants our hearts to be rent like his and to get involved and to intervene in what is happening. And that's why I love love life, because the worst thing I could possibly do is tell you what I just told you and then say, let's go watch the Super Bowl and not give you practical ways that you guys as a church family can respond to what we just heard. And so Love Life is a ministry that exists to unite and mobilize the church to create a culture of love and life that will result in an end to abortion and the orphan crisis. Now, we believe politicians will play a role at some point, but honestly, guys, the church is the answer to this problem. We have everything we need to enter into our culture and our world and show the world that God's ways will always lead to human flourishing. And that the salvation that people are looking for at abortion clinics can be found in Jesus Christ. And so you guys are adopting one week out of our 40-week journey of hope this week. And uh, Pastor Brian and I, we're going to dialogue about adoption week with you guys here in just a little bit. But I want to talk to you guys because I think some of you are probably prayer walk veterans. You've done Adoption Week with Love Life several times. I, I want to talk with you a little bit about um, an initiative that started a little over a year ago. You guys are House of Refuge, so this might be a reminder, but maybe it's brand new to you as well. But we have a goal this year to raise up 1,000 House of Refuge churches across the United States. Currently, we have 170. Um, the story behind House of Refuge, actually, I'm going to play you a video, and you'll get to see. It's a little weird because I'm in the video, uh, so just roll with it. Uh, but I'm going to share this video with you that kind of explains what a House of Refuge is. Um, but it's also a video that I love so much because there's a story of a, of a, a young mom, and, um, yeah, a young mother and her boyfriend, and uh, how the Lord intervened in their lives through an unplanned pregnancy. And uh, so I'm going to play their story for you guys, and then uh, I'll, I'll hop back up here and we'll chat some more about House of Refuge. Pastor, I will never forget when the reality occurred to me that women in our churches are having abortions. They're running from our churches and running to the abortion clinic for a solution to the problems they're facing. I was literally in a pregnancy care center in Raleigh, North Carolina, and the director told me that year alone, four women from a conservative evangelical church had come through their center rejected their help and gone through with having abortion. And not only do I work for Love Life, but I am also a pastor and an elder at a local church. And I remember thinking, is this happening in our church? And if it is, what can we do to prevent it from happening? How can we clear the air and remove the obstacles? You see, CareNet did a survey of LifeWay a few years ago and discovered that about 40% of women that had had an abortion did so while they were attending church at least one time a month, meaning they did not consider the church to be a safe place to run to, but instead went to the abortion clinic. And so when you look at that survey, one of the biggest reasons they list there is the fear of being ostracized, gossiped out, kicked out. And so what if we could create a safe place and create what we call houses of refuge all over the United States where pastors take two Sundays out of the year to just clear the air and to say, 
this is a house of refuge. If you or someone you know is facing an unplanned pregnancy, you don't have to run from us, run to us. You may have made a sinful decision that got you into this position, but being pregnant is not a sin. That child that you carry is a blessing. And so that actually happened in our church. And unknowingly to me, I read the House of Refuge statement on a Sunday morning, and there was a young couple that was attending our church that was not yet married that found out the night before that they were pregnant, and they needed a word from God to know that he was with them. And so I want you to hear Taylor and Mason's story. So Saturday night, um, I didn't have my period for a while, so I figured we should go take a pregnancy test. So we did that, waited, waited, <laughs> and then we got the results, and it said pregnant. And that's when Shane scared this and everything hit. Yeah, when we were waiting on the test, I was scared of telling my family and friends in our, our church because we were just dating at the time. When I came home that night from being with Taylor and finding out that she was pregnant, my whole family was together having family game night. And I came in and everybody was happy and glad to see me. And I just wanted to go up to my room so we go to bed that night and all these thoughts swishing around in our heads uh, mixed emotions and then we wake up Sunday uh, I go to church that Sunday and Josh starts talking about the house of refuge and my wife and what made it so comforting about what Josh was talking about. He was talking about how um playing pregnancies and how uh, the woman should run to the church instead of an abortion clinic. So that just made me feel comforted that they're not gonna condemn me or throw me out of the church or anything or gonna help me through all of it. That's when I decided to talk to Josh and our pastor Jonathan and they just really comforted me telling me everything's going to be okay. I actually went and bought a engagement to Taylor and I was excited about that and I showed my mom and she asked, is Taylor pregnant? And I was like, yeah, she is. And she was upset for a little bit but very soon came around and we went out to dinner that night after I told her, my dad gave me a hug and said, Very well, quick, congratulations. We took a pose, and we had a month of planning for the wedding. When we got married, then we started prepping for some year, and then we finally came, and it was just such a beautiful moment. Going through the process, everybody had a man to do it without support of people. So to all the moms that feel like they're in a tough situation, um, I just want to tell you that you can get through this. So there's people out there that's going to support you through everything, and they're just going to love you. It's because of churches and families that support these women that they can grow and have their babies and be confident in them. Pastor, you can see there's nothing political about this, and there's nothing harmful about this. There's people that need to be helped in your church, whether they're facing an unplanned pregnancy or someone where they live, work, and play is facing an unplanned pregnancy. You can equip your people to help them. And beyond that, there are men and women in your church who have had an abortion in their past and need to hear you say, you've not committed the unforgivable sin. There's hope and healing for you. And so the invitation from us to you, you heard it from Taylor and Mason, become a house of refuge. Talk about this with your church family. Let them know that this is a safe place that they can run to, not run from. And give us a rep from your church that we will train 
to equip your whole entire church to be able and ready to respond when men and women come running to you for help. So last year, uh, one of our House of Refuge churches in Alabama actually mentored 20 women in one year um, and uh, as a result of being equipped to be a house of refuge and being ready to respond. So um, as you can tell, the heart behind this is we have to realize that abortions are happening amongst people who at minimum are claiming to be Christian, they're attending our churches, and we want to put a stop to that, right? And I think part of the reason is I remember growing up in church, um, you know, just uh, there was actually an incident where a girl got pregnant. She had to stand up in front of the whole church and tell everybody what happened. And I was just like, wow, this is crazy. And there's this fear that I think drives people away from the church. And the House of Refuge statement is meant to uh, create a place of grace where people can come forward, just like Taylor and Mason. Like the, so the Sunday after we read the statement, her daddy came up to me in the parking lot and uh, he started tearing up. And uh, he said, Taylor's pregnant, and I'm going to be a grandfather. Um, what's remarkable about it is, though, because of Taylor's courage, her dad actually confessed to us some things that he was struggling with that the Lord has set him free from. And they came to us as a family and said, we want to tell the church family what's happening. So we had a family meeting after church, and they shared with the whole church family, what was going on, and our whole church family got to rally around them and love them, and and then we simply said, if you gossip about them, we're going to call you before the elders because if we're going to be a place of grace, we can't have people afraid of being talked about and gossiped about and shamed. And uh, so that's in a nutshell what House of Refuge is about. You guys reading the statement, clearing the air. What's also great about it, too, is for every one of you guys, when you know that you're a house of refuge, you might have a coworker, you might have a classmate, you might have a teammate that's facing an unplanned pregnancy, and you won't hesitate to be able to say, you know what, you can come to our church. We're, we're a house of refuge. We're already ready to know how to walk alongside of you and help you and do life with you. And we see that. We had two women in our additional community this uh, two weeks ago that we're talking with a mom who had an appointment for an abortion in, in Asheville. Um, I had a college student, Ben, who, or actually, yeah, he's still in college, he's working too. Ben, who had a, a co-worker who was contemplating abortion, and he, 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 he's not saying, well, you need to look up to my pastor. Like, he's confident in himself to intervene in her story and situation instead of being quiet, and, ah, we don't talk about that. But to love his co-worker enough to enter into that situation and say, you can come to my church that will help you, uh, and, and here's how. And so um, really simple, you read the statement, and then uh, you give us a rep. And uh, I don't know if you're the rep um, here or just have a rep. I should know that, but I don't. We have one. We're hoping for Hopeful. We've got a hopeful rep. <laughs> for sure. Um, yeah, so we train the rep to train the church and respond, because we don't want Pastor Brian uh, or Pastor Carl to say, yeah, we're house of refuge, and then someone comes forward, and there's not a plan in place to respond and to help that family. So um, just some realities about abortion that happen in, in our country today. It's the leading cause of death in the U.S., not cancer or heart disease. You won't hear it reported like that because the CDC doesn't report abortions as deaths, but that is the reality. It's not even close. Uh, 17,000 babies are killed every week. Abortions are allowed up to birth in some states. And just for you guys to put this in your toolbox, there is no such thing as a needed late-term abortion. That's a lie uh, from our culture. Um, a a late-term abortion typically takes two to three days to perform. If a mom's life is truly in danger, the fastest way to save her life is through a C-section and to take the baby alive. Uh, that can be done in about 30 minutes versus two to three days. So um, you, know, you can see that there's many ways in which the culture is lying to us because there's a father of lies who's behind all of it to bring destruction into people's lives. About one in four women and men, we always include men in that because they are a part of the process and should be held responsible. Uh, we'll have an abortion in my time, and 54% of those who've had abortions uh, claim uh, to be evangelical or Christians. 
One thing that is an important aspect of our ministry is, and, and I hope I've communicated in this way, that you know that we're not about shame and condemnation. And that if you have an abortion in the past, it is not the unforgivable sin. Uh, and uh, the Bible says, whoever confesses and forsakes their sin finds mercy. And not only is there forgiveness, we oftentimes encounter men and women who, you know, they know in their heads that they've been forgiven of a past abortion, but emotionally and spiritually, there's still healing that hasn't taken place in their lives. And that's evidenced by the fact that no one knows about it. Um, you know, I've spoken in many churches where I've been approached afterward and somebody will whisper in my ear, I had an abortion, my husband doesn't even know, my pastor doesn't know. And again, this is all a part of culture change where um, creating environments in our churches where people don't feel like they have to hide, that the gospel can apply to their sin and Jesus can bring healing um, into their lives. I had another video, but I think we, you guys usually go to what, about 515? 530. 530. Yes, which one is? Shailene's video. Yeah, that's good. Shut up. If I was going to get a deeper into the streets or do something else, I didn't know what that was. But God knew. He had uh, orchestrated a few events that night when I was walking down the street, and um, He called me out. He did it in Isaiah 41 9 for me, what it says. He took me from the ends of the earth, from his farthest corners, and he said to me, I have chosen you. I have not rejected you. You are my servant. And a van had driven by, and an arm came out the window with a flyer. And all he said was, Sister, when you get sick and tired of being sick and tired, give us a call. I took the flyer, I put it in my pocket, and I kept walking down the street. I didn't have any money, I hadn't eaten in a few days. Uh, the police had taken my car that day, so that was kind of a safe spot for me, having my car out there on the streets. Uh, but they took my car and sent me walking. And so I went to the abandoned apartment that night, and nobody else was there at that apartment. It was just me, which was unusual, because usually it was full of people doing drugs. But that night, nobody showed up. And I, as I laid on an old dirty mattress on the floor of this abandoned apartment, I pulled that flyer out, and it said if you have family problems, drug problems, alcohol problems, then first call on Jesus. I was in my 30s, and I had not done that as an adult, and I just kept thinking, goodness, I'm not, uh, I'm not doing so well. And I started calling him Jesus, but I didn't even know how to call out to Jesus, but the Spirit in me did. And so the Spirit called out to Jesus, and, and there I laid, and, and the Lord lifted the addiction off of me immediately. I got rest for the first time in years. I slept all night, and, and nobody showed up that night. And I got up in the morning, and the next line on that fire said, Then call us. We have the women's home free of charge. So I went to a payphone and called the 800 number that was on that flyer, and they were in Ohio, three hours away from Indianapolis. They sent me a bus ticket and I went to the women's home. When I got there, the first thing I did is I asked God to forgive me of my sin because I knew that I was the worst sinner of all. There was no other sinner like me. I had had an abortion at 16, and then I became pregnant again at 18, so I knew what to do. Um, I had my second abortion at 18, but the cycle didn't stop. And so at 20, when I became pregnant for the third time, Again, I had my third abortion, and then at 24 in Las Vegas, the cycle just didn't stop, so I had my fourth abortion, and I knew that I was the worst sinner of all. So I asked God, I said, Lord, I took the lives of 
churches. If you remember in that uh, video, you saw the Hope is Here brochure. But there's a website on that literature that gets handed out at abortion clinics around the U.S. called real-choices.org. And on that website is a map of all of our House of Refuge churches where any person can put in a zip code and they can see all of the House of Refuge churches and pregnancy care centers that are within a reasonable distance to her. Uh, and so you can see now why we have a passion this year to see at least a thousand House of Records churches in the United States, which is really a small amount compared to how many churches are in the U.S., but we got to start somewhere, right? Um, and so um, I will tell you, abortion is decentralizing away from clinics. Um, with the abortion pill being available online and potentially in drugstores now, um, it's, it's readily available and accessible. And if we don't have thousands of pastors and churches redemptively speaking about this and positioning their churches as safe places for people to run to, not run from, um, abortion is going to continue to run rampant in the United States. And 
Uh, it is a, a really sad reality to think about a young girl completely by herself without ever seeing a physician getting a pill at a CVS and trying to do this all by herself. And the potential danger and trauma uh, that that brings to her life I, I, I am so convicted that House of Refuge churches are vitally needed in the United States. And so I'm glad that you guys are one and you're going to continue to grow deeper in that. And um, yeah, so this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. So let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. And so that's what this week is about. Um, and uh, so Pastor Brian and I will talk about that here in a minute. We're going to sing. But um, the whole reason we take people to do prayer walks at abortion clinics is because we want them to see with their own eyes, just like Nehemiah had to leave the palace and go to Jerusalem and examine for himself what was taking place in Jerusalem. When we go there, our hearts are moved by the Father and Love Life then provides ways for you guys to get involved in ongoing ministry around the issue of abortion. And by God's grace, we've seen hundreds of mentors raised up here in the Charlotte area, hundreds of, uh, or, uh, I don't know about hundreds, but many sidewalk outreach counselors who are ministering at the three abortion clinics in Charlotte, offering hope and help to uh, people who have appointments, uh, adoptive and foster families, and then the restored life, as uh, we saw here on the video. So can I pray for us? And uh, we'll transition. Thank you, Father, for not leaving us to discover who you are by ourselves. You've given us your word, revelation of yourself, but it's also a revelation of, of us and ourselves and of how this world is broken and how that you are the, the uh, answer to this broken world. And uh, so, God, I pray that you would use this group of brothers and sisters in Christ uh, to minister where they live, work, and play. Uh, I pray that you would use them as they go out on Wednesdays and hand out Bibles and pray with people and proclaim the gospel, that you would anoint their ministry and the work that they put their hands to. Uh, Lord, I pray that uh, they would have opportunity, Lord, to minister uh, to those who maybe have had an abortion in their past or bring someone who's considering an abortion, Lord, where they feel emboldened because of your spirit and because of the church, the stance that this church has taken, uh, Lord, to enter into somebody's story in life because they know that you'll make a difference, that you bring transformation and you bring hope. And uh, so use them, I pray. And Father, I pray that anyone here today who doesn't know you and, and was stirred by Shailene's story and the uh, the scriptures, Father, that uh, you would draw them to yourself and they would confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that you raised him from the dead. In Jesus' name, amen.